Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Katie Marquette. It's wonderful to have you back. Oh, I'm so, so happy to be back on, Rachel. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. I was just singing your praises the other day, so it is, it's wonderful to get to talk to you again. My only regret is that we don't get to talk more outside of podcast recordings. <laughs> I know we should just we should just you know we need to just make the time and just be like let's get a you know a zoom drink and just like chat normally <laughs> without that the recording sounds, button on but um this uh that sounds amazing podcasts do force you to to stay in touch which I've always loved you know it's like it's like well we may not be able to find time but we can always find time to do an interview right so right <laughs> we're just disguising our social lives as a product yes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, when we were kind of, both you and I were going back over episodes that we want to record together and trying to decide on a podcast. And I had been listening to some of your episodes. I think they came out within the last year that I was really moved by. And one, there was two kind of back to back in particular that I thought were fantastic. And one was on lifting the veil and that kind of experience of liminal spaces. And we'll go into what that means in a minute. And then the other was about a photographer who goes right to the edge of, of the wilderness and takes a single photograph, which I thought was an amazing concept. And it, it struck me that, and I just made this joke <laughs> before we started recording, but it struck me that it's a very fitting topic for you and I to talk about the liminal spaces and numinous experiences, because this podcast is called Risky Enchantment. Enchantment is a big part of that. And your podcast is called Born of Wonder. And wonder is absolutely a part of that. And so in some ways, it feels like a topic that both of us have spoken about before and uh, delved into in different aspects and avenues, like even just the two, two episodes that I mentioned there. Um, but it would be so much fun to do a deep dive just on this concept of liminality and what it is to encounter something beyond reality. Yeah, I think it's absolutely the the perfect conversation for us. It's um, you know, I I I've, I know you you've said this on your podcast before as well talking about Born of Wonder, but I re I recommend Risking Enchantment a lot and we always seem to be doing extremely similar topics. So, um, I we clearly have like sometimes at the same time too. Um, mm -hmm. which I love, so we're just on the same wavelength. So, I always say if you like Born of Wonder, you're going to love Risking Enchantment. I feel like we're just two sides of the same coin. So, um, this is just this conversation is really all about that I think I know it's so perfect sometimes it's a little spooky sometimes it looks yeah. like we you and I have been planning topics together and we really haven't <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> just think exactly the same <laughs> no, we're just being simpatico but yes yeah, so the concept of liminality if it's not a word you've come across a lot it's it's a word that came up a lot in my English degree and so sometimes I take it for granted that people kind of know what this concept is but it's a sort of um it comes from the word limina, which is threshold. It's it's these experiences and places that are sort of in between. So I, I, you know, on a really mundane level, it might be a train station or an airport. Um, but when we talk about it in this more sort of spiritual and cultural um, expression, we're kind of talking about those places and spaces that evoke something beyond the mundane of the world that are... I think that there's the term thin places, which is this idea of like a porousness between this world and the next world. And, you know, as Catholics, we believe that God is everywhere and is not, you know, sort of thicker in some places in some ways, but, but that there are experiences and uh, particular landscapes or particular moods that can um, help us to enter into or like give us a glimpse of that reality that sort of lies behind um, what we so often miss when we're just running around with our busy days. Yeah, I, I have always thought of um, thin places as sort of um, their places and also moments that are sort of like wake up moments. You know, C.S. Lewis said to know that one is dreaming is to know that you're no longer is to no longer be fully asleep. 
And uh, I sort of feel like in the the rush of everyday life of just routines and, you know, busy, busy, busy all the time, we sort of end up sleepwalking a lot through our lives. Mm. And, uh, you know, thin places, liminal spaces, you know, a beautiful cathedral, we'll, we'll go into sort of places specifically, or moments, you know, extremely um, moving moments, birth, death, um, all, all sorts of things like that, that sort of wake us up to this reality that is happening all the time, um, that is full of profundity and wonder and all these sort of things that just sort of is always existing, but that we are quite blind to uh, most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so we've talked about liminal spaces, and I want to go into some of the experiences that that I, I kind of feel like have encapsulated that for me. But to then explain, then when we talk about numinous experiences, numinous is the, the word that we use for this sense of dread, in, in some ways, in a positive way, a kind of dread or awe. I think we think of it in terms of the gifts of the Holy Spirit of wonder and awe in God's presence that, you know, that we might feel the enormity of God's presence. And so in some ways, not that not that the two are absolutely intertwined. I think that there can be liminal, there's plenty of liminal spaces without numinous experiences and vice versa, but that in these liminal spaces where there seems to be a lifting of the veil or a thinning of, of the mundane reality, that it opens us up to having these kind of numinous experiences that, yeah, that feeling of smallness in a much bigger creation and that feeling of, and I'll go into this in a bit more detail. There's kind of two aspects. Some of it on some level, it can be sort of dread and fear and like almost like ghost stories and feeling like there's, there's something otherworldly and threatening around you. And at the same time, the allure of, enchantment or the allure of beauty or the allure of something beyond the everyday so that it can be both kind of scary and attractive at the same time Mm -hmm. and so obviously I feel like that's such a an important experience for people who are creating art for people who are going to literature but also rests at the center of you know our faith is not about our feelings and again we're going to talk about this a bit more it's not about trying to continually generate these experiences but that when we are taking our faith seriously we would hope that it opens us up to these experiences of of encounter but I was thinking for myself with liminal spaces I mean I love sitting on trains and looking Mm. at the farther hill it's Mm. always like just and and I, I think that's what's key for me about liminal spaces is that they're a threshold to me they're never a destination they're not like in some ways I don't think the Eiffel Tower could be a liminal space because you're going to see the Eiffel Tower but looking down into like the basement entrance to somebody's flat on the way to the Eiffel Tower might be like a little liminal moment that these like there's almost something transitional about them that they're kind of transformative and they're not the end point because the experience of them is pointing to something else. And so whenever I'm sitting on a train, it's like the farther ridge or like the little brook over there, or there's just something attractive about them. But they're not always to me necessarily super positive experiences as well. I often think of, I've been in hospitals when there's been like that low hum of like machines beeping and hushed voices. And again, because like, I feel like a hospital is not really a destination, whether someone is passing away or you're hoping for them to come home, but there's, you know, and hospitals can be very busy, mundane places as well. But I've been in that experience where there's like a quietness and a sense of trepidation and a sense of expectation or fear that feels very liminal to me or I also think of it in terms of like if you've ever been in an office or a a shopping mall but after hours when it's closed and it's not being its true self like nothing nothing in this bit all of the stuff is here for work or here for shopping or whatever and nobody's doing it and no one's there and it just feels like it's sitting and waiting in anticipation for something for itself to be back to normal in some way Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's um, all of those are so, so interesting. And I think you bring up a good point about how it's not always a destination. I think it can be. But um, I think I wonder if there's sort of a 
an aspect to it that's the unexpected that sort of brings, you know, that sort of Mm. jolts your mind a little bit. Um, Because I always think of the Baltimore Basilica, which I live near, I'm a a Catholic convert. And I wandered in there on accident when I had moved back to the area and I was sort of rediscovering the city. And I just wandered into this, um, this beautiful cathedral. It's America's first cathedral. And I didn't know it was there. Um, and I had been going to the city my whole life. So there was something about it that really shocked me that this amazing place was sort of there amidst, you know, this downtown that I thought I knew. So I think that that certainly is part of it. Um, it can be a beautiful place, but like you said, it can also be a not so beautiful place that sort of jolts you in some way. Um, I think airports um, are often liminal spaces in the same way that you're talking about a train, Um, you know, people sort of all passing one another, not sure where they're going. Everybody's in between, everybody's en route, nobody's there yet. And I wonder if all these things uh, sort of relate to the fact that thin places are about realizing that the world we're in is not the destination. You know, it's about realizing that our everyday world, us sitting here talking, everything is not it, you know, that there's that actually we are in transition. We are, we are in between right now. Um, You know, as you are, as we are talking and you listeners are listening to this podcast, you are in an in-between place. Um, The world is not it. So I think that thin places remind us of that and uh, something about those yeah, like the hum in a hospital that made me that made me think of um I don't know if you've watched any David Lynch. Um he's a very eccentric um director. He did this series called Twin Peaks. Um and he does sort of semi-horror kind of strange um features, but he often will show um like blinking fluorescent lights as uh before something terrifying happens and some that really freaks you out, gives you that trepidation because you're like, that's something so mundane. And but you're like noticing it for the first time. You're like, why is that light blinking? You know, something like that. Um, So I think that something like that in those spaces that, again, can be that mix of awe and also kind of a a horror too, um, a fear. We -hmm. talk about fear of God and love of God in the same breath often, because I think maybe they aren't so different. Absolutely. And I love what you said about the basilica and the churches, because I think it's always such a a difficult tightrope to walk. I love visiting Rome. I love being in Rome and I love being in St. Peter's Basilica. It's one of those things where, you know, when someone asks you after a trip and you're like, well, what, what was your favorite church? And you're like, it's so basic to say St. Peter's, <laughs> but, but really, it does. You can't go wrong. I mean, amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's scale and it's majesty is unbelievable. Mm. But at the same time, I think then it's tricky because obviously I want everyone who comes to be able to see it. But then when you have this sort of very mundane tramping through and, okay, heard 60 people in for 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. look around, say, tick, you've done it. I think not only do they miss out on the chance for having that sort of numinous experience, but it also detracts from from the experience of of believers being there because you're suddenly in in the midst of a crowd. And it's not that crowds are necessarily, like you said, I think for airports, they can be very crowded places Mm -hmm. and yet they still have that kind of liminal quality. But when when there's a huge amount of people there that are ve- there with a very different mindset and a very different purpose i think it's it it can be more difficult to enter into that more interior perspective or that more hushed awed um experience like there's nothing worse in the the Sistine Chapel than the fact that they have to and i understand why they're doing it but like there's the noise of the crowd but almost worse is just the attendant every 30 seconds going shh Silencio. <laughs> yes. No. Like, nothing could be worse for my sense of silence than someone mm-hmm. telling me to be silent. All Absolutely. The time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, I do think um, I, I've thought about like Rome is a good example, actually, because um, anytime I've gone, it's, you know, of course, impressive to see the big sites and things like that. But it's also the fact that it's sort of like you can't not find an incredible church or art or you know piece of art or something there so it's more i remember when i was just wandering around and i actually didn't know 
what church I was walking into. It was like a mass was starting or something. So I just went in and it was the church where the ecstasy of St. Teresa is. Um, <laughs> like Bernini. You know, it's like, I'm, like you know, I just came across that and I was like, is that the real one? Like, you know, it is. So I, that sort of like shock of just, you know, and it was, you know, not under lock and key. It wasn't like a big tour guide situation. It was like, I had been walking mm. and was like, let's go in here. And then I was surprised and shocked to find myself in, in front of this incredible work of art. Uh, so I think that I, yeah, when you sort of get on that, the, the cattle train of tourism, like, you know, it's like sort of like necessary. I get it. I understand why it happens, but it can certainly detract from the, again, we aren't basing all this off of our emotions, but it's just, it does take away from it for sure. And I remember one more anecdote of me being in Rome. There's a tiny, tiny church and I could be wrong because I think I thought this and looked it up and I was wrong. It might be called something like the Church of the Holy Blood or something like that. But it's this tiny church that's just off the plaza where the Trevi Fountain is. And whatever way they've built it, when you're in it and they had, they had a, it's just so tiny. I think I was there when they were doing Eucharistic Adoration. And it's so quiet in this tiny little church. And then you open the door and the blast of sound mm. of people at the Trevi Fountain yeah. just hits you. And in some ways, that, that's a real kind of mm. like, you have this very quiet, private moment. And then like the real world comes ru- rushing back in in a big way. Right. And like I think- you go to the movies in the middle of the day and you come yes. out, it's like still light outside. You're like, what, what, what has been going on? <laughs> That's so right. Um, But I think the reason why we're kind of interested in this experience is because, as you mentioned, in some ways, this encounter with the numinous and this feeling of dread is actually one of the ways in which we have to indicate that there is something beyond our reality. I know there's a huge chunk at the start of C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, where he talks about the numinous as being an indicator that it's something within within humanity to experience this sense of like overwhelming awe or dread. And so I was reading the word numinous, I think it was coined by this uh, writer, uh, Rudolf Otto, and he talks about the reactions that humans have to these ex- encounters. I think he lists out numinous dread. There's also stupor, which is that sense of like being stunned or, or yeah, o- overpowered. Then there's the shudder, which is that kind of trembling that might happen. And then finally, he says that you can have a sort of creature consciousness and the simultaneous experience of the self as nothing. Uh, and finally, the sense of unworthiness and need for covering. And I think all of those things, like we see them in the Bible repeatedly, whenever there's sort of an encounter with God, um, that I think that the idea that these are recognizable traits is one of the things that tells us that there's something, there's something more. And so to explain it, maybe I will just pull a little bit from C.S. Lewis's section on the numinous, where he's talking about, you know, suppose you were told that there was a tiger in the next room, you would know that you were in danger and probably feel fear. But if you were told there was a ghost in the next room and you believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. With the canny one has reached the fringes of the numinous. Now suppose you were told simply, there is a mighty spirit in the room, and you believed it. Your feelings would then be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be profound. You would feel wonder and a certain shrinking described as awe, and the object which it, it excites is the numinous. And I think that's so beautiful. But he also makes a really good point that like, for people who want to hand wave away these experiences is just they're just coming from ancestors who didn't know what they were talking about or that that you know they were afraid of the thunder because they didn't understand it or they were afraid of volcanoes because they just looked like rivers of fire and you know that it came from the fact that there was less understanding of the world and yet I think Lewis makes a really good point that it is not in the least natural in that sense that the idea of the uncanny or the numinous is already contained in the idea of the dangerous or that any perception of danger or any dislike of wounds and death which it may entail could give the slightest conception of ghostly dread or numinous awe to an intelligence which did not already understand them. When man passes from physical fear to dread and awe, he makes a sheer jump and apprehends something which could never be given as dangerous 
injuries by the physical facts and logical deductions from them. Yeah. Um, you've heard that expression, you know, somebody just walked over my grave or something, you know, where you just like, you get like a, a, a shiver of some kind. And um, there's that Celtic saying that he- heaven and earth are only that like, there's three feet apart that we're so close to these things. And I love that idea. And I think that Lewis, he's always written so well about how natural the spiritual urge is in, a, in us. Like, you know, you don't have to impose that on us. And I think that that's what this is getting at here is that this is something that it's sort of, it's part of being a human being is, is to experience these things. It's not something we put on the world. It's something that exists within us and outside of us. And it's there for us to discover, not impose. And um, yeah, that I, I'm seeing our notes here, that the idea of a shudder, you know, that like that idea that um, feeling you get of, uh, you know, Moses wants to, you know, you take off your sandals. You have this urge to sort of like, there's like, I have got to do something in the face of this. And what you were saying about, you know, if somebody says there is a ghost, I mean, based on some movies, you might be kind of afraid of what a ghost might do to you. Some of these ghosts are pretty active. Uh, I don't I don't know if I want to encounter them. They're kind of violent. But uh, so you might be scared on that level. But um, I yes, exactly. It's sort of like, the, why do people go on these sort of like haunted, you know, tours or something like that? I think it's for that thrill, right? Of like, oh, we're that close to something, uh, you know, that that's sort of that's what people are seeking out. And I think that's also why um, in the Catholic tradition, you say, yeah, you better, there's some sort of careful parameters we want to put on these things because we aren't making it up. And, uh, you know, you, you will encounter these things and we need to, to know what we're encountering. So, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's that kind of thrill seeking or the, the love of, of, of dipping into that fear yeah, that I was thinking of that even in like ghost stories. Mm-hmm. But what's beautiful from a Catholic point of view, though, is that that reality, that that understanding that it, it is a reality that we're encountering. And in some ways, we take it a little bit further in that so much of what we're saying here is almost sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Like, is does a liminal experience exist unless there's mm-hmm. a human there to, to feel it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when we're talking about especially things like the mass and the Eucharist, even when we bring our worst mundaneness and our inattention and our dryness and our lack of feeling to the mass and to our prayers and to to receiving the Eucharist, which I know we should absolutely try to enter into that experience, but I think most of us know that it's very hard to schedule yourself to do it at a you know on a Sunday morning or whatever mm-hmm. whenever you're going it's it's very hard to conjure up those feelings and I think that's also really important because I think again we don't want our faith to become something about our feelings and I was thinking about this in terms of you know we've talked on this podcast a lot about the gothic and the romantic movements and how they were obsessed with these experiences they call them the sublime and this like yearning to experience the sublime and that sort of became an end in and of itself. And as I've said, that to me, that totally misreads what's happening because the whole point of that experience is that it points you to something else. It's not the end point. It is indicating to you that there is something more to be um, understood and entered into. Um, And so what's beautiful about the mass is that even when you're not feeling it, you know, that it is happening, this sort of numinous experience, which is that the presence, God made present is happening right in front of you. And that, and while we can have it in these sort of beautiful liminal or transcendent spaces like St. Peter's, but we can also have it in what I spent my childhood going to, which was a old folks home chapel, (laughs) which is, you know, distinctly mundane in a lot of ways. And yet that numinous, that awe-inspiring moment of transubstantiation is still happening all the same there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. And I think so important um, is, is to emphasize, you know, this, the sacramental life is, you know, a sacrament is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. So the sacraments happen, whether we feel them or not, whether we believe them or not, um, they happen. And uh, when I was converting, my priest told me, you know, he said, we know God works through the sacraments, but we don't know the many other ways that he works. So I think that a lot of times those encounter with liminal spaces are those other ways that he's working that we may have not been aware of um, that are 
very personal to us that are about our own relationship with God and the world and our own spiritual experiences. But, you know, this is something to be conscious of because as a convert, I was, you know, very enthralled with those experiences. I went to a beautiful basilica. I heard, you know, chant. I went to these Rorate masses with like candles and you see the sun shining through the stained glass. And it, it, I mean, it's amazing. Um, and that drew, that drew me in a lot. Um, and I think as, I guess I converted like five, I can't even remember now, five years ago now. Um, but, you know, as life go, goes on and I have two little kids now and I can't always make it to the sublimely beautiful masses or I'm chasing a toddler or nursing a baby or something, I'm not always privy to those um, experiences. I'm not always emotionally as present as I wish I was. So I think that the beauty of the Catholic faith is that we value that experience. We value beauty. We value that emotional response to beauty. But we also recognize and emphasize that that our faith is sturdier than that. And so um, if you aren't having that experience, if you're not aware of just how thin of a place you're occupying, it doesn't change the spiritual reality. And um, I do think that's an important distinction to, uh, to emphasize for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, as you grow in holiness, I was thinking, I, th I think I read an article which made a really good point to me, which was that while we talk about thin places as being sort of porous, that when we think of it in terms of the saints, like that while it is the full realization of who they are uh, in their holiness, it is also porous enough to allow you to see God through them. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a beautiful thing that like in some ways you could be your own sort of porous point between um, this world and the next that in entering into that kind of holiness. And I think you made a really good point in your podcast on um, the extremes, which is that like this idea of pilgrimage and going out to these really like if we, you know, I haven't necessarily had the chance to visit a lot of them. I would love to. But when you think of like Skellig Michael or even Mont Saint-Michel, all of these places that are or Iona, these very extreme remote pilgrimage places or these places of retreat for prayer, um, that there's something about these like edge experiences that allow us to enter into these these experiences more and I think that's a that's a fascinating way to think of like our faith and the the courage of our faith and and seeing it as this chance this bold chance at stepping into a slightly un unknown territory mm -hmm. yeah and um as you mentioned earlier on, um, my sort of meditation on the edge was inspired by this photographer named Thomas Joshua Cooper. There's a New Yorker profile about him a few years ago. I can probably find it for you to put in the show notes, but um, it was absolutely fascinating to me. He has this 1800s antique camera and he goes to the most extreme locations you can imagine, you know, where, you know, maybe only a couple other people in the world have ever stepped foot. And he goes and he takes one photo with this antique camera of his, um, which is give, gave me a lot to meditate on many different levels of just sort of like photography and capturing things that can't be captured. And also just this, this desire we have to... Um, I don't know, it's like to prove ourselves, but also just to say like, you know, I stood here, I experienced this, I've, I've made it to the edge. There was a quote of his that was like about his art. And he said, my whole practice is edges, edge of the world, edge of the land and sea. And that just like caught my imagination thinking of um, the edge and what, why we seek it out, you know, when it's so dangerous. And I think um, the edge is, can be a spiritual you know, reality as well as a physical one. And it's certainly, we're, we're always seeking it out. And I think it's, again, because I think that we know on a spiritual level that we are always on the edge, that we are, and, and being in a physical place like that reminds us of that in some deep way. Absolutely. And I was thinking of it in terms of there being sort of two draws within, I think, most people's souls. And that's to to try and find these great experiences. And in some ways, I think in your, your episode, you mentioned how it's not really ideal to try and seek out a liminal experience or seek mm -hmm. out a sublime experience because in the, in the effort or in the expectation or in the demanding that you're kind of, that mentality doesn't actually 
open you up to them in mm-hmm. in, in the best way. Um, but at the same time, that kind of deep homesickness as well, so that like there's a sense in which you you can't find the edge and you can't find home either. Like that like homesickness can follow you around even when you can go home, that like mm-hmm. there's a sense of not being at home either. So that like when we think of God, it's when we're both in the presence of this incredible overpowering mystical experience and yet is it is exactly where we're at home as well mm-hmm. and I know we did a whole episode on the sense of longing in the wind in the willows but I do just want to come back to it because I think it's so perfect because you know even mole has this like little journey there's obviously the really uh, important numinous experience that they have when they encounter the god pan and it's uh, you know it's a great moment where um, Mole asks, are you afraid? And Ratty says, no, never afraid. No. And yet I am afraid that like mm. that, that feeling of being both totally at rest and also afraid at the same time is, mm. is so perfect. But even before that, in a really small way, you know, Mole has two experiences, one where he tries to go out into the wild wood on his own because he wants to have sort of interesting adventures. And another where he has this like he gets a scent of home and he is heartbroken and wants to go there. And in both cases, neither both end up being positive experiences, but neither fulfills the actual longings that he is feeling that like he goes home and uh, Ratty goes with him and makes it comfortable. But it it doesn't actually fulfill because he's moved on he's moved away from his old home that it can't ever be exactly the same and the the same with the wild wood which i'll I'll get the quote from it uh because i just think it's so uh so wonderful and beautiful they said they found themselves standing on the very edge of of the wild wood rocks and brambles and tree roots behind them confusedly heaped and tangled In front, a great space of quiet fields, hemmed by lines of hedges black on the snow, and far ahead, a glint of the familiar old river, while the wintry sun hung red and low on the horizon. The otter, knowing all the paths, took charge of the party, and they trailed out on a beeline for a distant stile. Pausing there a moment and looking back, they saw the whole mass of the wild wood dense and menacing, compact, grimly set in vast white surroundings. Simultaneously, they turned and made swiftly for home, for firelight and familiar things it played on, for the voice sounding cheerily outside their window, of the river that they knew and trusted in all its moods that never made them afraid with any amazement. Mm, I love that so much. That's so great. Um. You know, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, we, he just he just wrote so well about all this, but that joy mm. is more akin to homesickness than any other feeling, that joy is not a destination feeling. And I think that mm. that captures that, you know, of just like looking back and like, the, like it's a longing, you know, um, and that's what yeah. we're being, that's what we're experiencing. It's, it's more, it's so, it's so hard to put into words. And I think that's just sort of the nature of what we're talking about, but um you know, anybody who's listened to my podcast knows my obsession with the Scottish Highlands. And I think it's for sort of all the reasons that we've talked about that edge feeling the wildness, the vastness. uh, Mm -hmm. But also, you know, when I go there, I feel like homesick, I feel like, oh, like, I'm so close to something that I love, but I'm not quite there, you know. Um, And so it's sort of a, it's almost a painful feeling. Um, It's like this way, this the way I feel about my kids, sometimes like you love them so much. And you're just like, oh, like, I, I can't, I don't know what to do with this feeling, you know, and like, it's mm. reminding me of something. It's, it, it's, uh, you know, I think that our, our truly happy, joyful emotions are actually a lot closer to painful emotions than we realize. Um, yeah. And I, I think probably like the thinnest experience of my life is like after like I've gave birth, you know, they saw that, that golden hour is when they put the baby on your chest and like, mm. you're just this hormonal, wreck and you've just gone through labor and you know the, the, just see this person that you've been carrying in your body for nine months and everything else and it is um it is it, it's impossible to describe but it's uh you know that is that's it's it's that pain and joy at the same time and i think that um that that feeling of homesickness uh that, that you're talking about and i think also when you were talking about um that the experience with pan, I also thought of Aslan, how they, uh, mm. you know, of like, 
that you're like afraid of this mighty lion, but uh, you know, that, but also so at ease. Um, so again, that, that fear and trembling and that love and adoration and uh, these feelings that are awakened by these experiences and places that are really, really, uh, really deep. Absolutely. And I think it's, yeah, C.S. Lewis is so great. And we've, we've quoted from him because clearly he's thought about it explicitly. Mm-hmm. And then I think he obviously worked it into his fiction, especially in, in Narnia, although I think it's in his space trilogy as well, but that, I think he's so good at those liminal spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, you know, the difference uh, between his his style of stories and versus a straight fantasy where you're just in the fantasy world, whereas um, he's very much more of that fairy tale one where you're stepping from this world into the other world. And as a kid, I just, I was always waiting to find the tree trunk that you could climb into and get into another world or the, you know, whatever it was that like, where are these? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But he has so many of them in Narnia and Mm -hmm. like, and, and as we find out in, in the last battle, Narnia itself is only a liminal space as we're going on to further up and further in. But, you know, like you said, the wardrobe or I, I, I'm such a fan of the magician's nephew and that has, has two. And isn't it so interesting that the first chapter of the magician's nephew is called the wrong door? Yes. Oh, wow. I, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I was always obsessed. I think I've said it before on the podcast because we didn't have a necessarily big wardrobes in my house, but we we did have a crawl space in the attic mm. and it didn't go anywhere. We were in a detached house, so it wasn't like we could get into other houses like Diggory and Polly do. But right. I did have a crawl space that I could that I could crawl into and, and between the beams and not step on the bits in between. And so that bit in, in the magician's nephew was always so evocative to me. And it's amazing. You know, they, they go into that liminal space and they end up accidentally at the wrong door in uncle Andrew's uh, study, which then leads them to the woods between the world, mm-hmm. which is potentially one of the best sort of liminal spaces. Cause it's not at, like Diggory actually says, this is not a destination. This is not uh, anywhere it's how you get to some somewhere else and I think mm-hmm. that's such a he captures that so amazingly with these still quiet woods with these pools of water they just they're so evocative mm-hmm. yeah and I mean even just I think in our you know in our physical world woods the woods you know I think there's a reason they they appear so often in fairy tales is like the woods mm-hmm. themselves I mean they're mysterious they're on the road to somewhere they are you know, between valleys, you'll have a section of woods and you don't quite know where you'll end up on the other side. Um, So there's a certain mystery there. And then we have uh, these pools that are both reflecting, but also maybe leading somewhere. You know, it's uh, like these... I love the way he does that, that he takes the in, the things that we already find so mysterious. And I think he touches on, like you said, he's so good at finding what is so exciting to a child, like the, those small spaces where you can crawl into. And, you know, I remember just in my house, like just that you, I would love to go in my mom's closet underneath her clothes, the hanging shirts and stuff like that. And just that feeling of being hidden and that maybe there is something behind those shirts. It, it was like the potential was always there. And yeah, so I think the, the the woods between the worlds is maybe his most explicitly thin place in the way that we've been talking about. But um, certainly all throughout Narnia, there's uh, these, these transitional places. Um, and yeah, importantly, like you said, Narnia itself is a transitional place. And uh, the children figure that out in the last battle and are on their way, you know, in the sort of Tolkien sense, they're into the West, you know, we don't know uh, yeah. what's next and that the adventure has just begun. So um, it's it's just beautiful. I love it. And I was thinking when you were saying about the woods, like to me, the most liminal kind of thin place to me in the Lord of the Rings stories is the old forest. Mm, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that like you've just left the Shire and the Shire is already start, starting to get uncanny because you're being threatened by these outside forces. And then you enter into this strange wood with these, you know, it, it's got its own rules. It's got its own, you know, and, and yet you're not quite into the realm of like, other races and other other concerns right, the elves just- haven't shown up yet yeah it's 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 very much a we are out of our depth here but we are mm-hmm. still familiar enough but me may- it's yeah. sort of like that it's like that look twice idea of like oh did that tree just do something or did that you know where you're just it's a little bit of an uncertainty 
Yeah, and that it's all also that it's familiar enough for you to have scary stories about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> that, like, you know, when something's so far away, it's so foreign. But when it's so mm-hmm. close, it's actually close enough for you to have all of these built-up mythologies. And I was reading an article about M. R. James's ghost stories, which was actually going through the use of trees and woods in it and reminding mm-hmm. us that like the word panic comes from the god pan that oh, wow yeah yeah there is this sense of, of there being both like an awe-inspiring encounter to be had but definitely a scary one like a a, a panicked uh, like reaction to this sort of yeah the the sense of the the woods are not in your control <laughs> yeah yeah um and then I was also, well, I was trying to think what other ones, maybe less sort of naturalistic ones. I really loved Susanna Clarke's book, Piranesi, which feels oh, like yeah. a very a very liminal world of tides and stone as well, which is mm-hmm. a very different vision of it. But yeah, I think those are just so great. And I love how when we think of the last battle and we think of Narnia as a transitional space, I think it's also important to remember how there there's the is it d- the dwarves who are sitting there refusing to see it and refusing mm-hmm. to encounter it. And I think yep. that's also really important to remember that like it's very easy to blind ourselves to those experiences and even more so in a world full of technology i think i read an interesting quote in preparation for this which was saying that like technology is power but it's disenchanted power and Mm. so we're then looking for other ways to find enchantment which i thought was quite kind of interesting but it's so easy i think is it is it charles taylor who wrote about the the buffered self that it's it's so easy to enter into our lives where we're just cut off from anything that might impact us or encounter us, like even to the extent of like human interaction or I, I, I'm always totally aghast by these Amazon shops that are now appearing that you can go into them and it just, it takes something like 30,000 photos of you as you go around. And so it just, you don't have to go to a checkout. It just knows what you've picked up in your bag and deducts that from your Amazon account, which, uh, and the selling point is like, you don't have to interact with anyone. And I just think this is the absolute zenith of Mm, (laughs) everything wrong in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone as like going to self checkout sometimes when I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh gosh, I'm just like burnt out. But I think that those little interactions like are life. So, you know, yeah. we choose to participate or not. And just on that deeper level of like whether we encounter these experiences in places or not, I, our priest said recently um, that like the all of it, the spiritual life is like the movement from a closed fist to an open hand of just mm-hmm. like, you know, and you hear that in the Psalms, you know, open up your heart, open, unclench your fists, you know, and it's just uh, the saints talk about emptying yourself, you know, it's just, it's this, it's a state of receptivity. And in Catholicism, we believe that you, you know, you go to confession to be sort of like, even for venial sins and things like that, because they all sort of, um, they make it harder to see, they make, they sort of cloud our vision. If you think about um, being awake to these experiences, being able to see through the veil a little bit more, we have to be sort of spiritually prepared. But if we're so muddled up in our own egoism and problems and, you know, the many, many, you know, material concerns that we have, you can very easily miss them. Um, and they can be all around you, uh, which is something I talked about in my episode on this topic of just things in my house, like we have my grandmother's old piano. And that to me becomes a thin place when I play it and remember her or my husband's playing it or something, you know, it's just that we can remember an experience or not. Um, it's just, it's, um, again, like with the sacramentals, they exist, these things exist. Um, It's sort of up to us whether we are open to them or not. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important because so much of our faith is about, you're saying about that closed fist and to the open hand and even that sense of lifting the veil. Like I think of the the book of the apocalypse, like apocalypse meaning the lifting of the veil. Or Mm -hmm. I know I read one of Pope Benedict XVI's sermons on the ascension and how like looking at what it means to be taken up and how that Mm -hmm. actually means that Christ ascended into heaven, the human being has entered into intimacy with God in new and and unheard of ways that like, it's not just someone floating up into the sky, but it's about 
heaven coming down to earth as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that it's so easy to to miss and to to just go through life and never never think of it, never notice it. And I just think it's such a shame. And you pointed me to a really great essay by Roger Scruton called Effing the Ineffable. <laughs> Where, and he talks about it in particular. I think it's a good point, which we haven't really t- touched on as well, which is, and you just said with your piano, with music and especially mm-hmm. unsung music or, or music that's not very specifically about lyrics. I think you could probably get choral music, but that is about getting lost in a movement and emotion of of sound that is is this kind of transitional space it's not really one thing or another it is causing you emotion but not because the words are saying something it's just because this combination of sounds for whatever reason makes us respond with these emotions mm-hmm. um but he says Anybody who goes through life with an open mind and an open heart will encounter these moments of revelation, moments that are saturated with meaning, but whose meaning cannot be put into words. These moments are precious to us. When they occur, it is as though on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch sight of another and brighter world, a world to which we belong, but which we cannot enter. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, Roger Scruton, and I would recommend um, to listeners to read. He writes about beauty and aesthetics, and um, he's a very interesting thinker. Um, and I think he writes so well there about how, again, with that openness, if we are open, we will, in our individual ways, we will catch these very important glimpses. And I think that mm-hmm. what you and I both try to do in our podcasts and writing and everything else is to remind ourselves and other people that like this is a worthwhile endeavor in life is to be, you know, that like the pursuit of beauty on that level that that wakes you up to spiritual and emotional and realities is is sort of the point. (laughs) It's not a distraction. It is it is life, you know, it's uh, and I think, again, like with, you know, technology is one thing, but it's many things. I mean, we can be distracted by so many other things. I think technology just makes it so easy to be, but mm-hmm. you know, it we can absent ourselves from, from life so easily. And it's really important to stay open um, because otherwise you'll miss it. You're going to miss, miss life, unfortunately. Yeah, that's it. And I think that was one of the things that the uh, writer Rudolf Otto that I referenced at the start mentioned, which is that when we encounter the numinous, we we realize that it is us who feels less real and that mm-hmm. it is the thing that we are encountering that feels more real rather mm-hmm. than it being something that is unreal because it is sort of supernatural, but that actually what we are encountering is something much more foundationally real. And it reminds me of actually a quote from Wordsworth this time where he says, I have learned to look on nature as a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense of sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thoughts and rolls through all things. Mm. May we all be disturbed with the joy of elevated thoughts. Wow. (laughs) I love that though, that it's that I like that he used the word disturbed, you know, because I think that Mm. harkens back to sort of how we started the conversation of that. This isn't always a positive thing, that it's, it's a much more sort of muddled emotional experience. There are the highs, but there are also the, you know, uh, it, it's it's disorienting to realize, you know, like in, when you're dreaming and you realize you're dreaming, it can be very disorienting and upsetting sometimes. And sometimes you wake up and sometimes you don't. And, you know, I mean, I think that that, that can be the experience um, here in our, you know, waking lives as well is sort of a, whoa, what's going on feeling, you know, it's disturbing. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. And so I, I think we'll draw our discussion to a close. I would love to keep talking, but mundane reality is, is going to be encroaching on us fairly soon. Yeah, I, so I, every, uh, My husband says all's good with the baby right now. So we're not t- terribly, terribly rushed, but I, I we should, uh, you know, life goes on. Alas, babies need to sleep and need mom to sleep. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I just wanted to Uh, close out with our usual question. Can I ask you what you're enjoying at the moment, Katie? 
Yes. Um, so I, uh, I, I love Agatha Christie, as I've talked about many times before. And I just read, I'd never read this short story of hers called Three Blind Mice, which is what her play The Mousetrap is based on. And The Mousetrap is the longest, you know, running play in history. Agatha Christie has some very, you know, impressive statistics behind her, which is, you know, her books are the you know, so, uh, the only, uh, only, only book that's outselling her is the Bible. So, I mean, she's just amazing. But I find myself reaching for her as we record this, it's summertime. And I um, often read her mysteries during summertime for some reason. And um, it just sort of transports me a little bit. But this play, uh, this short story, Three Blind Mice, really stumped me. And it was really fun to read. And it's short. It's only like 80, 80 pages. So um, if you're just looking for, you know, a fun whodunit, I would recommend that. Um, and I just always recommend her as, you know, a great, you know, you have like 150 books of hers to choose from. So yeah, I also love that I, you know, have not run out of new Agatha Christie's quite yet. I couldn't agree more. Uh, for my recommendation, I think I'm going to say I've been listening to an album by an Irish artist called Molly O'Mahony, uh, and her she has a recently released album called House of David, and the whole album is great. I would really recommend it if you want to start somewhere. Actually, the last track, Remember to Be Brave, is probably my favourite, although I also love um, Brother Blue and... Uh, the in-between, which the in-between is very fitting for this. Hey, <laughs> what a great, great title there. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that's our our recommendations for this episode. Uh, and you reminded me that I actually have Agatha Christie's Caribbean Mystery sitting on my bedside, which I've been neglecting for the last couple of days. So maybe this <laughs> evening I'll uh, dive back into it. <laughs> um, yeah. And hopefully... Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure when I'll be posting this particular episode, but I'm hoping we will also have a companion episode of me on Born of Wonder very soon. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I will encourage you to check that out. And I'll be sure to share it, share all about that on my Instagram, which is uh, at Risking Enchantment Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Seeking Watson. Can I direct them to anything that you're doing at the moment, Katie? I know you've taken a step, a wise step back from social media. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've I've foregone social media at least for this uh, time in my life, but I am online. I'm really a very active user of Substack, um, mm. which, if people aren't familiar with, is sort it's sort of a blogosphere space. Um, but you can download it as an app. Um, I write fairly you know, um, often on there. Uh, you can also just go to bornofwonder.com. You can contact me. Born of Wonder Instagram exists in perpetuity there to, you know, there are archives of things to find there. But if you would like to get in touch with me, just um, either go to Substack and look up Born of Wonder or Katie Marquette, or just go to bornofwonder.com. And I would love to hear from you. And the same with uh, for myself, you can find my website, rachelsherlock.com, uh, where you can get in touch with me there. And if you want to find out more about the podcast, you can just go to rachelsherlock.com slash podcast. Uh, but other than that, thank you very much for listening. And thank you again to Katie for joining us. It was just an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Oh, it was so fun. I wish I wish we could talk about these things for hours. So we'll just have to keep coming up with excuses to, to get on each other's podcasts. So it's always so fun. Thank you, Rachel. Absolutely. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com Thank you and God bless.